You're listening to the Jay's Journal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Ari Shapiro. And on this episode, I have for you a jam-packed show, chock full of baseball goodness. After a week in which the Blue Jays were in the news every conceivable hour of every minute of the day, with the most notable movement aside from J-Hap and Sangwang Oh and the pending trades of maybe several other players, with the most noteworthy one being Roberto Asuna traded to the Houston Astros for Ken Giles and a couple of prospects. And of course, there are a lot of questions you probably have, no doubt. And I'm here to provide you with some answers. We're going to start the show with a one-on-one conversation with the Dow of Steve from Sportsnet. He's a phenomenal writer and blogger who's always on top of all the latest Blue Jays news. And then we'll switch gears and speak with the Blue Jay Hunter himself, Ian Hunter, also one of my favorite writers and authors, to discuss where the Blue Jays are headed, what the direction has in store for them, what the future looks like, and to cap it all off, I'll have a nice round table consisting of Chris Henderson from the Jays Journal, Richard Burfer from the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network, and Cole Shelton from the Canadian Baseball Network, all with me to discuss the Blue Jays, all the things that you love about them, maybe some of the things you don't like about them, but most importantly, what you need to know about what's going to happen next during a very, very tumultuous year. So as promised, leading off this episode of the baseball show, this rather significant episode given the recent news of the Roberto Asuna trade, it's a pleasure to bring on the Dow of Steve from Sportsnet. It's here. Mr. Steve, how are you this evening? I'm well, Ari. How are you? Well, I'm not thrilled, obviously. Uh, today, certain dominoes fell that I guess we, you and I were anticipating we're probably going to fall at some point. I can't say that either of us are terribly surprised to learn of the news of Roberto Asuna being traded for Ken Giles and two Houston Astros prospects. But I want to start by asking you your initial impressions. How did you feel the moment you heard the news and found the full details of this transaction, knowing that the trade deadline was around the corner and something was bound to happen sooner or later when it comes to Asuna? To be honest, uh, it, it was a combination of, uh, of a bit of surprise that they that the Blue Jays were actually able to to move Asuna. The the more that I was hearing stories over the last twenty four forty eight hours that they were looking to move him, um, the more it seemed to me that uh, that I, I just felt like teams were going to have a hard time uh, taking Asuna on, especially given uh, all that's unknown. And uh, and what uh, the the state of the case against him uh, could mean for his ability to to travel and to work in the U.S. Um, so so there 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 was a little bit of surprise on that level, um, and honestly, uh, there was a level of relief uh, that this is you know, that we weren't going to have to see Asuna uh, step back onto the mound in a Blue Jays uniform. Um, it's a, it's an odd relief, and it's certainly one that you don't um, take a great deal of pleasure in. I think you, there, there's, there's a sense of, uh, you know, a, a problem that, um, uh, that you're really quite sad and upset about and that you sort of recognize has kind of been 
handed off from from your team to another. Um, so it's not a great deal of satisfaction. Um, but you know, I think uh, I, I think um, it, it kind of it kind of lets us off the hook on on a certain level as Blue Jays fans, and and maybe that is. Um, uh, a very shallow, uh, selfish bit of relief, but it's a bit of relief nonetheless. Well, when it said that it came down to having to feel that kind of emotion given the circumstances, right? I mean, you and I have spoken many times before on this show about how Roberto Osuna essentially represented an important nucleus as part of a nucleus, if you will, of young players that we as Blue Jays fans could look forward to the future, right? It was all about Aaron Sanchez and Marcus Stroman, and especially Roberto Osuna, given his age, given the fact that he was the youngest player to 100 saves. And we could really make the case that he is the best young, one of the best young relievers in the game. So you can imagine from a baseball perspective, to know that this player's actions caused this chain of events to happen. You're absolutely right. It, it really is hard, isn't it, to find any kind of solace given all the angles of the story. It, it's it's incredibly disappointing, you know, and and uh, I and I feel like somehow to say things like this, like talking about uh, you know relief and 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 disappointment and whatnot, it, it sort of does a disservice to ultimately what mm-hmm. that kind of the the base of of what's going on here, which is the fact that uh, that uh, Roberto Osuna allegedly uh, assaulted his um, partner, uh, the mother of his child, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and um, and it's not just. I, I mean, that, it's a hard thing to get out of your head. I know that there's been so much kind of weird chatter around this where people start to get like overly legalistic looking at it um, Mm -hmm. and starting to parse, you know, what simple assault is versus aggravated assault and whatnot as though these things somehow, uh, you know, are supposed to make us, uh, you know, feel better, feel more at ease. I mean, you know, I, I understand the presumption of in, innocence, uh, but the presumption of innocence is is reserved for um, the government versus the accused. And I don't think that knowing what we know about uh, the world in which we live, that that we necessarily have to extend the presumption of innocence to how it is that we look and feel and suspect about a uh about a case like this and then i mean really just to go to to get to the root of it here i it's it's such a disappointment you know especially i think the blue jays fans really um embraced asuna as a young uh player as a player who came from i think uh difficult um, upbringing, uh, a player who was very public about his um, uh, mental health issues, and I think that Blue Jays fans really rallied around him in that moment. And you know, there's a bit of this that does feel like a betrayal for us as a fan, uh, as fans. Um, and again, 
that betrayal to us is nothing compared to the betrayal of uh, the, the the person who he's alleged to have assaulted. But um, but you know it, it it I I think there are probably few players on the roster uh, who for whom the, this happening or them doing uh, this. Uh, would feel worse to the fans than than having mm. to be a sooner. So, so you know, I mean, it, it's I I'm I, I I'm again back to what I said at the outset. I, I'm relieved that I'm not going to be put into a situation where um, the Blue Jays are are hitting the ninth inning and he's coming in because I I did kind of think about it and thought I would probably just turn off the TV and walk away uh, if Ozuna were coming into a game. And I would wait until I got the alert at the end of it, but I just didn't want to sit there and hang off of his every pitch. And, you know, mm. I, 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 I really think, I hope that what's happening with baseball over the last week with people going back through, uh, back through Twitter and, and seeing what people have written, I, I just hope that baseball is ready to have um, the baseball, the clubhouses, the organizations are really ready to have something more than a superficial uh, discussion about the culture uh, and some of the toxicity uh, within the the culture of baseball. And, you know, I, I really wish that there were more Sean Doolittles and he had just an amazingly empathetic uh, and, and, beautifully articulated uh, tweet thread tonight. And, you know, I just, I, I wish that that were, that were the dominant voice coming out of baseball as opposed to the, you know, litany of excuses for quote unquote young men. Um, So, yeah. That's, that's very well put, especially when considering that, no two organizations are alike, and as a result, it's incumbent on the Blue Jays in being their own proud harbinger of the right kind of values that a baseball club should have in cultivating interest for its fans, not just not just interest, obviously, but adoration, loyalty, and commitment. These things are all tempered by the decisions that you make on and off the field as an organization. And John Palmarosi was on Tim and Sid and talked about the fact that some organizations clearly have that as their mantra, as their priority, like the Cincinnati Reds when it came to Aroldis Chapman, like the Los Angeles Dodgers in not doing a trade for him when they needed him and instead having the Cubs scoop up the opportunity because the Yankees' cashman gave them an offer that ultimately they couldn't refuse. But... How, how how do we perceive the Blue Jays' decision to go ahead with resolving this issue in a way that, I mean, when I look at what they've done, I was extremely critical. I was writing a great deal and, and going on air and talking about it and was very concerned about how tone deaf they were. Did they redeem themselves by making this move rather than perhaps trying a different alternative like putting the player in the minors, sending him off to club med, seeing if they could rehabilitate his image and his brand while hockey and basketball was happening or maybe trying to trade him later. How do you view the timing of this? Do you look back at this decision to acquire, again, Ken Giles, 
David Paulino and Hector Perez, two prospects that aren't, one is a top 10 prospect, but it's almost as if they got 50 cents on the dollar. What do you think about that when you look at the quality of this move, both from a baseball perspective and also from one that involves considering a moral compass for the kind of clubhouse environment you want? I, I I think that the Blue Jays as an organization were put into a, a very difficult situation. I've seen a lot of uh, second guessing um, and, and uh, people kind of even after the trade going back and saying, well, why did Ross Atkins say what he said, uh, you know, in this uh, in this impromptu press conference that he had and 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 parsing some of those comments, you know, uh, I I think that they were put into a, an incredibly difficult posi- uh, position and they were put into an incredibly difficult position by Roberto Osuna. And so while people want to take a look at the organization and to criticize and, and, and to go through uh, each of those, uh, the, those discussion points where they said he's our closer, which it seemed like maybe they were trying to um, put on the right yeah, face yeah. in case they decided to, to move him so that they didn't, Totally, they they couldn't say if they were going to go down that road of we're going to try and to try and at least salvage something out of uh, Roberto Osuna as an asset. And you know, like, look, it's gross to think of human beings who play the sport as assets, but Lord knows that we all do it. So let's let's not suddenly pretend that we're all the virgins at the orgy here. Like this is this is the way that we've looked at, at, at the sport, you know, uh, outside of this context. So, you know, the, the Blue Jays had a, uh, an awful and public human resources problem. Uh, it's one which they could have cut ties with him and taken a very high moral ground. Um, uh, they could have buried him in the minors and, and seen whether or not if there there was, as you said, some ability to rehabilitate him. Um, and I, I don't think I would have been totally averse to that. But seeing what the what what they managed to pull off um, with this, you know, they get they get a couple of uh, prospects that are now sitting in their top thirty prospect list. They get a reliever who has bad results, but not necessarily uh, the worst uh, uh, underlying numbers. And maybe there's something there. Um, it's I, I I think that I think that they probably they they didn't take the highest uh, moral road on this, um, but they probably did the best that they could. Um, within the constraints that they had. And uh, so, you know, and and if there was, as was indicated by a few people, some indication that that they had made a decision that he was not going to come back and he was not going to pitch for them again, I think they, um, I think that they probably did about as well as they could. And yeah, some of the messages that came out of those uh, press conferences don't, don't sound didn't sound great then. Maybe they sound bad to people in retrospect, but I don't know. I I, I challenge anyone to tell me um, uh, what they would have done uh, that one would have uh, that that would have 
responded to the problem in front of them and to uh, not um, totally undermined um, the the future of of the ball club. I'm inclined to agree with you on that front. Uh, I think they were put in a very, very challenging position and one that wasn't getting easier with every each and every passing day. I'm inclined to agree that not only was it a difficult position that they were placed in, but philosophically one that really, I think, could have caused lasting damage. And so it's it's nice to see that they're walking away from this with a fresh start there will be criticism, of course, from people on social media and fans alike saying, look at this this thoroughbred, this pedigree, what should have been a part of our future or a, a profoundly strong trade asset has now basically gone by the wayside. Let's turn it around and look from the Houston Astros perspective. Uh, I tweeted out and essentially said that under no circumstances would a Pat Gillick or a Paul Beeston, after winning the World Series in 92, would ever make this kind of trade to acquire a player who still has legal proceedings pending over an issue involving the domestic abuse policy of which he was punished for 75 games almost immediately. Why do you think the Houston Astros didn't care as much? Was it purely because they were not willing to even consider the moral issue, but simply look at it as a great, savvy baseball move to get a closer that could help them repeat? Because I'm scratching my head on this one, especially in lieu of all the things you said about how baseball hasn't exactly had a great week when it comes to how they relate to their fans and the, the, the image and message that they're sending about the importance of, of character and class in their athletes. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I... Uh... I don't know if this is relevant. It's one of those things that sort of pops into your head as you are asking yourself, you know, why, what was in it for Houston and, and why would they do this? And, you know, they won the World Series. It's not as though they're the team that's desperate to get over the hump. They're the team that, you know, will will sell their soul in order to, 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 to get, you know, to get, uh, through and to be able to to win, they've won once, and um, so you know that's that's not as much of a there's there's not that rationale that um, that uh, you know you almost could have uh, you know recognized a level of desperation there, um, and and I when you look at it even you know there's a really interesting thing that's happening within the uh, the Houston uh, um, clubhouse where suddenly uh, Justin Verlander is having, you know, some comments that he made about a former teammate who was caught on video uh, beating their spouse and, and quite, you know, tersely and angrily um, uh, responding to that. And now Justin Verlander has to answer, okay, well, what do you do? What do you say to to uh, Roberto Osuna coming into this clubhouse? So, you know the 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 team, the Astros have brought in, uh, you know, uh, they've brought in a very good baseball pitcher um, with a whole lot of problems uh, attached to him, and uh, you know, there's a, there's an expression I'm sure that, that you've heard it, and many people have heard it, which is this idea that um, that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
and uh, and so you know strategically that might have been a good move for the uh, for the Astros. Um, you just wonder if culturally that that's um, that's something that they that they might uh, regret. Um, but you know maybe they maybe they. Uh, they they said that they've done the due diligence. Um, they said that they have heard remorse from Osuna, although in some of Osuna's comments, uh, some of the comments coming out, uh, I mean, we really haven't heard any remorse from Osuna at this point, and maybe that has to do with the state of his legal proceedings. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that even still, um, even with Asuna being a Houston Astro at this point, I, I think I would still like to hear some sort of level of remorse and contrition and and, and something other than um, uh, the things being sort of put out by uh, his lawyer. So I don't know. The, the Astros have brought in a problem. Maybe you know. Maybe they they get through it. Maybe they get past it. I mean. Well, and, and certainly, I guess we're fortunate up here in Canada that we don't have uh, what is it TMZ? I guess we'd call it TMZ if we had it up here. But I'm glad that we don't have those types of muckraking organizations because you can almost see that happening down the road for Houston. Pictures and recordings and things to further indicate that this Blue Jays front office probably knew a great deal more than they were letting on. I like the fact that you mentioned that Ross Atkins coming out early and saying he will rejoin the club was perhaps a really great strategy on their end, wasn't it, to make sure that there was at least some demand for the player. Because in the final analysis, the Blue Jays have effectively acquired three pitchers to now add with two infielders and two outfielders so have you overall been pleased with their efforts to to turn the ship in a direction now where 2019 will have a cavalcade of promise? Um, I'm curious, who do you still see going tomorrow at the deadline? Um, which Blue Jays do you think will not be part of the team as we head into August and this kind of new reality, a post-Asuna era, maybe even a post-Onaldson era, who knows? What are you thinking at this stage in the game, given how close we are to the deadline? Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, turning turning our heads to that, uh, I think that uh, that they they've done an okay job. Um, I, I like Brandon Drury um, actually, and and I, I think that there's um, I think that there's something intriguing there. Um, uh, you know that they're they're sort of i think getting a bunch of sort of uh, uh scratch off tickets here and just seeing what they can what they can get out of them uh, at this point and if any of it comes uh, comes to fruition uh so much the better um uh you know Curtis Granderson i think um there's both the Phillies and Yankees who are apparently lining up on him both of them have some needs right now, and and so I could see him potentially going. Uh, I think that there's uh, some other guys who could be August moves. Although, if you get into a situation where you're trying to move relievers in August, I think uh, relievers with small contracts 
I, I feel like those might be easier waiver uh, deals to block. And so maybe they would want to try and move Clifford, say, or Axford or, um, or uh, you know, some of the other free agents who are sitting out there. Granderson seems to me like the, the most likely uh, to go. And then, uh, you know, it, it, I think I've said all along that I figured that, uh, that August would also end up being uh, a busy time for them. So, um, you know, why not? I mean, this is, this is, I think acknowledged by the fans, the fans, I don't think I've heard anyone complain uh, about this being a fire sale. I think if anything, people are, are, are probably ready to throw more people on, you know, and it's amazing to, to hear people start to say, what do you think we could get for, for Stroman? What do you think that we could get for Ryan Tapera? Uh, I would take anything for Ryan Tapera at this point, but that's just my personal bias against, uh, uh, against, uh, him. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that's the right approach. Um, you know, that, the problem is, I guess, is that when you raise the floor, uh, you don't necessarily have a lot of high-end items to go out to bring high-end items back. And so, you know, they've done they've done okay. I don't know that these are going to be things that change the face of the franchise, but they maybe maybe they hit on a couple of them. Uh, and and you know. Drury, like I say, I, I, I think I, I like I I like him a lot and I think he could really uh be a guy who, you know, is a really uh is a role player for them on a good team in the near future. I uh, I I'll second that motion. I like what I see about him and I like the fact that he's got a lot to prove and, and being a younger player, he he understands that he could be part of a long-term future under uh, the Shapiro regime. Uh, let me wrap up by asking you one last question related to a couple of names that have like, have been bandied about and, and mentioned far too often for my liking, because as you mentioned, we're getting to that point where fans are, are feeling some desperation pulling names out of a hat, trying to gauge the relative intrinsic value of one player versus another. And you talked about the face of the franchise. We know that in 2019, it will be Vladimir Guerrero Jr. If you were the GM, would, would a Dow of Steve future for the Blue Jays include a Marcus Stroman and a Josh Donaldson if you had your druthers? It's funny because uh, I think... Donaldson, I, I, I guess it's just been so long since we've had the opportunity to to really appreciate him as a player. I mean, he's a player who made me who made me ball at the ballpark uh, when he hit the walk off home run in the last home game of 2015. Like I just. I, I went to I went to breathe in and then I started to breathe out and nothing was coming out uh, but but tears and so uh, it, it, such an amazing moment and yet I mean all we've seen from from Donaldson for most of last year and and almost all of this year uh, is seeing him hobble off the field um, uh, so. Uh, 
and for a guy who's 32 going on 33, I, I just don't think that 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 augurs well for what you're going to get. I bet you he has a couple of really good seasons before his career is done. Um, yeah. But but who knows uh, which one of those seasons those are going to be. Uh, Stroman, you know, it's funny uh, because pitchers are hard to nail down. I mean, I I still like him. I even like uh, – you know, I, I I like his antics on the mound. I guess I I shouldn't really call them antics. I like the fact that he is an enthusiastic player. Um, uh, you know, he sort of does uh, do things his own way. Um, he's a, he's I I think he's a bit of uh, I I wish that he understood the job that the media have to do when they're in the room. Uh, with him, and I wish that he, as someone who should be uh, a very productive public face for the franchise, um, I think that he, I, I wish that he understood that that uh, playing the game with some of those folks uh, could help him to get his his uh, sort of underlying message or or some of the things that he really cares about uh, out beyond just, you know, his Snapchat and, and, and Instagram or what have you. So um, I, I feel bad. I, I feel bad going down that road with, with, with Stroman because I think a lot of times I, I, I just, you know, as long as players are, are behaving themselves relatively civilly to their fellow human beings, um, and and giving it their all in the field, then then we shouldn't be parsing that much of of uh, of their behavior. But I I like Stroman, I do, and and yeah. uh, but but uh, um, I don't know. I mean, this is this is what happens with ball players, you know. I, uh, Jimmy Keela, Roy Halladay got traded. Carlos Delgado got traded. Uh, Tony Fernandez got traded. Uh, you know, like uh, these these guys, they sort of come into our life and then they 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 leave again. And you know, it's, I've quoted this line from Croupier before: "It's hang on tightly and let go lightly." So mm. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be eager to see Stroman leave town, but um, I, I also am not uh, I, I'm not sure beyond two years down the road um, what role he has with the Blue Jays franchise. So, And you should know that that croupier quote is my second favorite that you use behind pretending to be a virgin at an orgy. <laughs> he is the Dow of Steve. You can find him on Twitter at Dow of Steve. And as always, you do fine work on Sportsnet Anything on the horizon in terms of articles, maybe a nice little plug for something you're cooking or, or planning to release soon? Uh, I have an article coming out. Uh, last week I wrote about some of my favorite uh, trades from uh, the sort of 86 to 89 period. Um, and uh, I have one, another one coming up uh, on uh, – I think uh, a very meaningful trade for me 
as a Blue Jays fan and a baseball fan. I'm going to look out for that one because, as you know, I still have fond memories of that era, even if going back that far kind of creeps me out from time to time because it makes me realize just how much time has passed and how old and brittle we're getting. But, Dow, this was a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time this late for the show, for the baseball show. He is the Dow Steve here on the Jays Journal Podcast. Thanks very much for doing this, my friend. Thanks, Harry. My next guest on the baseball show this week is blogger and writer for the Sporting News, MLB, Daily Hive Toronto, and Blue Jays Nation. You also know him as the gentleman who runs one of the best Blue Jays hubs for news insight and analysis, which you can find at www.bluejayhunter.com. Ian Hunter is back on the show. Ian, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. Hey, Ari, nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure, and it's been a while, even though I think you hold the record for most, like, roundtable appearances and one-on-ones. I've got to post, like, some kind of... i got to tweet something where I can show who holds the record so you can brag about it, like, Saturday Night Live appearances. Perfect, yeah. So long as we're... I, I'm pretty sure we're in the five-time club, so that's, that is the big one for SNL, so I'm pretty sure we're in there. Well, we better be careful. You're, you're starting to imply that I owe you, like, a smoking jacket or something, which I will absolutely give you. Don't worry <laughs> about that. Let's let's talk about these Blue Jays coming out of the All-Star break here. And I want to start by asking you just how horrible it must feel to be a Baltimore Orioles fan. I mean, I've seen some futility from opposition, from teams that have come in here that have just truly, truly been horrible. But this is a whole new level of failure, I think you'll agree. Right. I mean, if you thought things were bad with the Blue Jays this year, bad in Toronto, just look a little further south in Baltimore. Uh, this is a team that's, I believe they're on pace to win about 44, 45 games this year. Um, they are 41 games back of the Boston Red Sox. Um, at, at least with the Blue Jays, um, I think you tweeted this earlier today, but they have at least some percent chance of a playoff spot. I'm almost certain the Orioles actually have a negative probability of, of reaching the playoffs at this point. Um, everything has just fallen apart for them. They're free agent signings. Uh, guys like Alex Cobb have just not panned out. You had Zach Britton injured to start the year. Manny Machado, their all-star shortstop, has just been traded. And really, if you look down the pipeline, it's not like there's much coming for the Boston Red Sox. And also looks like, I believe, Dan Duquette's contract is up at the end of this year. And you know, you've got questions about whether Buck Showalter will return as manager next year. And it's just, man, like you look at the – and compare the Blue Jays to the Baltimore Orioles. And at least with the Blue Jays, there is some glimmer of hope that within the next few years there's going to be guys like Vlad coming up and Bill Bichette. But in Baltimore, they're just a shell of a team. Like, you know, it's like a double-A – yesterday it was like watching a double-A, triple-A team uh, – you know, kick it around out there. And it's just, they are definitely not a major league caliber team right now. So I suppose you could, you could say that Blue Jays fans can look at them and at least feel a little bit better knowing that there are some teams in professional baseball that are in a bad way, not just because of bad years, a bad performance over a stretch of time, but the prospects for the future. And of course, that's all we're talking about now. That's all that you and I get asked questions about that we ultimately write and read about when you look at what the future holds for 2019, 
Are you convinced that it will be strictly a developmental year, a quote, rebuilding, unquote, year, or will it be an opportunity for the Blue Jays, depending on what they do at the trade deadline, to try and find a team that at least will be competitive, that will at least have the kind of effort and fundamentals that have been missing more or less throughout the entire year in, in 2018? Well, I mean, I think next year is definitely going to be a, a rebuilding year for sure, regardless of what happens at the trade deadline. And you're starting to see, especially within the American League, and uh, you drill down even further in the American League East, it's just the Baltimore, or sorry, the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees are just head and shoulders far above everybody else right now. Um, it's hard to envision the Blue Jays being a really competitive team in 2019, even if they do bring in Vladimir Guerrero Jr., even if they do bring Bo Bichette in. It's just the Red Sox and the Yankees are so powerful. Uh, so I, I think entering this year, the Blue Jays were forecasted to be something like an 85-win team, something around there, which put them on track to be a, a second wild card team. Obviously, that's not going to pan out. But next year, I think you're going to see that w- projections for their win total dip m- much further down, probably something around a 70 577 win team uh, which I think is okay I don't think the front office is um, trying to delude anyone into thinking that next year is going to be a competitive year it's definitely going to be a year of growth and a year of experience for some of the young prospects and a turning of the tide because really this year is a, there's a lot of holdovers from those glory 2015-2016 years you've got Josh Donaldson, Jay Happ, Marco Estrada, uh, all these guys are pending free agents this year, more than likely going to walk out the door. And next year, it's a, uh, a completely different Toronto Blue Jays team, which I think is actually a good thing because most of these guys are in their uh, mid mid to early 30s, and you really want to see someone like Bo Bichette out there every day, someone like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and, and Danny Jansen getting playing time and uh, seeing what's uh, up ahead for the Blue Jays in the next few years. So you and I are both admirers of Richard Griffin, does some great work with the uh, Toronto Star. He projected what the 2019 team would look like. And as I'm reading this, Ian, I'm thinking to myself, is it my imagination or does this team look better in 2019 than it possibly does in present time? Meaning, should Blue Jays fans be truly optimistic that after Bo Bichette and Vlad Guerrero Jr., there is enough in the prospect kitchen that will produce the kind of meal that people will look forward to eating in the future? Well, I mean, that's always been the uh, the weakness of the Toronto Blue Jays over the past I would say five, seven years is their inability to draft and develop position players. And right now they have a a lot of them uh, on the cusp of coming into the major leagues and not just guys who are going to break in and be 200 hitters. You have legit threats like generational talents like Guerrero Jr. And Bo Bichette is not far behind him. Danny Jansen, I haven't heard a bad thing about him this year. You would think next year, as you mentioned, the prospect, of this team actually performing better uh, seems to be pretty high um, because you had, assuming that a lot of these guys hit the ground running, now obviously not every prospect is going to come in and tear the cover off the ball, but even just having someone like Danny Jansen, maybe catching two thirds of the games for the Blue Jays, I don't think is all that unreasonable. Expecting Vlad Guerrero Jr. to be the everyday third baseman. Again, I think that's a, a reasonable ask. Bo Bichette, 
depending on what the Blue Jays do with Lourdes Gurriel and where he fits in and someone like Troy Tulowitzki, uh, if he ever comes back healthy, his place on the Blue Jays roster next year is a little bit in question for me. But all that aside, I would say, yeah, this 2019 Toronto Blue Jays team looks uh, pretty good. And it's a, it was always a fun exercise for me. If you ever go back and just look at, like, the Baseball America top 10 prospects for the Blue Jays, and they always project the, the Blue Jays lineups four and five years ahead. And if you ever just want to go back and kind of have a few laughs, just go back and look at those because uh, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what the 2019 Blue Jays forecasted roster was four and five years ago, but I can almost guarantee you it's nothing like it's going to be next year. Yeah, I, I remember them vividly, and I always remember thinking to myself that no matter how we try to prognosticate and project what the team will look like three, six months into the future, it never fails that there are developments, right? Players get injured, players get suspended, some of them regress. What's fascinating to me is to see the number of prospects that have been regarded in circles within the baseball community that clearly are reasons to be excited for. And when I think about this trade deadline, can we agree, Ian, that there might be a few players that we definitely would like to see them keep? And what I mean by that is I'm totally fine with a fire sale to get assets and use 2019 as a year of development and rebuilding, truly rebuilding. But is there a part of you that maybe wants to see someone like a Marcus Stroman or a Justin Smoke be part of a group of veterans that can help these young kids, maybe set an example on the importance of competitiveness, even when the expectation is you're really not going to get more than 70, 75 wins? Yeah, I I think there's something to be said about some of these players are probably more valuable to the Blue Jays than they would be as a trade chip. And two of those guys that you just mentioned, Justin Smoke and Marcus Stroman, would definitely be at the top of the list. I wondered if Stroman might be a candidate um, for someone who w- could possibly be traded. But then I looked ahead to the forecasted 2019 starting rotation. And really, if you take someone like Marcus Stroman out, that leaves a huge hole in the starting rotation. When healthy, this is someone who could, you can pencil him in for 200 innings. Um, he's really had it up and down the last few years, but for the most part, you can still rely on him to make 30 starts and, and give you 200 innings, something you, we haven't seen out of someone like Aaron Sanchez. So I feel like Stroman is probably uh, vital to the importance of this team in the next few years. And then Justin Smoke, because he's on a team-friendly contract, I think he has an option for next year. Um, so And he is someone who's got a very reasonable contract, and he's been one of the most productive Blue Jays hitters this year. So those are two guys I would actually probably be apprehensive of dealing, if anything, I would probably look to move someone like maybe a Jan Harris Solarte, perhaps even entertain trading Ryan Tapera because he has some years of control at a fairly reasonable salary. But um, yeah, I would definitely, I'd probably be against dealing Stroman and uh, Smoke at the trade deadline just because they are too valuable to the Blue Jays roster rather than as a trade chip to uh, get you prospect capital. Give me your outfield though. I'm curious for for 2019. What does your outfield look like, and are you satisfied enough with what you've seen out of Teoscar Hernandez in left, knowing that he strikes out, you know, one in three at bats, plays a really poor left field, and Randall Grichuk, who, with his slow start thrown out the window, the numbers start to look decent, even though they're still not necessarily where he'd like them to be. Are, are you sold on a future that still includes Kevin Pillar after? 
everything everything we've possibly seen this year? I mean, shouldn't we just start next year from scratch and let outfielders like Anthony Alford and maybe Dwight Smith get a chance to really prove their worth rather than going back to the well with three treads? Yeah, two of the three of those guys, I would say Hernandez, you've got to hang on to because he's just, his bat is so valuable. Uh, defensively, he's had some struggles in right field and left field as well. He's not a plus defender, but he's just so, uh, he's he's incredible at the plate. So I think he's someone you definitely have to hang on to. Uh, Randall Gritchick, I feel like he's really turned it around since he returned on, on June 1st. Complete, he's a completely different player at the plate. And he's a really solid defender. I've always thought he's a, a, a right fielder and center fielder's clothing. So the fact that he's playing center field for the Blue Jays right now, and he made a very Kevin Pillar-esque play earlier today where he uh, ran down a ball in center field at the warning track, I think just that just reinforces you that uh, reinforces that he, uh, Kevin Pillar is replaceable and he's someone. Uh, the problem with Pillar to me I think at this point we kind of know what he is. He's a, he's a plus defender. Um, I don't know if he's a, a gold glove caliber defender anymore, but he's someone who's not maybe a league average, slightly below league average hitter. Problem is he's you know going into arbitration now. He's making four or five, six million dollars, and I feel like that's something that you could replace. You know, like with a, a Deutschmann Jr. or Anthony Alford making the league minimum probably providing plus defense and great base running and hitting. So to me, I, I, in the near future, I really don't see Kevin Pollard fitting in on this team. I just, it's just his salary becomes so exorbitant going through arbitration that you could just replace him at a much, uh, uh, much better level. Unless the Blue Jays non-tender him or possibly find a trade candidate for him. Uh, that's probably what my, my outfield for 2019, I think ideally is looks like uh, Hernandez, Grichik, and uh, some combination of Alford and uh, Dwight Smith Jr., probably. And, of course, you mentioned briefly what to expect in terms of the predictable, the salaries that are still locked in, granite-like, kind of a holdover from the Anthopolis era, the the two biggest ones being Tilowitzki and Martin. All things being equal, would you have been infinitely more hopeful for the future if those two contracts weren't on the books in terms of what leadership could have done to go out and get savvy, veteran, established, productive players? Or does it really make a difference at this point? It's all going to be more or less, as they say, blown up, and they're going to start from scratch, except for the fact that they're going to have certain contracts that, I guess, would you say could provide an upside? Like maybe they will get something out of Tilowitzki or Martin, or is that all basically a pipe dream at this stage? Well, I don't think those two contracts in particular are really holding the Blue Jays back from uh, reinvesting that money into a free agent or something like that. Every team seems to have at least one albatross contract like that. Um, Martin, he's, his, his contract is up next year and he's going to be making $20 million dollars. He's probably going to be the Blue Jays. I see him coming out from behind the plate, probably going to be like the Blue Jays uh, super utility guy. He plays some third base, second base, shortstop, whatever. Um, and Danny Jansen probably catches the bulk of the games. But at $20 million, I mean, it's really not that unreasonable. To me, it's the, the Troy Tulowitzki. That's the contract that's basically hanging over their head right now. He's uh, under contract next year for $20 million, then $14 million in 2020, and then there's a $4 million buyout in 2021. And it's really hard to foresee where Troy Tulowitzki is going to fit into this club. 
in the near future. Uh, even if, let's just say, Troy Tulowitzki never plays baseball again for the Toronto Blue Jays, just theoretically. Um, I mean, that's the kind of money you could easily eat. It's it's really not going to prevent the Blue Jays from doing anything. For the most part, it's going to be a lot of these younger guys chewing up the playing time anyway. So it's not like they're going to go out and sign a giant free agent contract to, you know, like a five-year, $20 million deal. It's uh, it's going to be guys like Bichette and Guerrero and Jansen driving the bus. So um, it, it sucks that they have these two big money contracts on the books, but um, Martins, for example, comes off the books next year. So it doesn't, that really opens up payroll in, in 2020. There's really not, aside from Tulowitzki's, there's nothing on the books really for, uh, for the 2020 season for the Blue Jays. I want to get your opinion about something that I recently discovered from researching the trends in baseball when it comes to batting averages, hitting and getting on base. And you're probably smiling because you know exactly where I'm going. I researched back using baseball reference and fan graphs and all the other great stuff that we can find on the web to see that in 2006, the league was at its highest levels when it comes to getting on base and creating station-to-station baseball. Since then, it's gotten worse. It's gotten so bad that teams like the Blue Jays can have a 235 team batting average and we don't blink an eye. It's almost as though everyone's expected to suffer what's been a decade now of really, really bad baseball fundamentals. Sacrifice flies are down. Sacrifice hits. Attempted steals. Walks are down. Strikeouts are up. Home runs, of course, went up. But my question is, Ian, when you see something like in this afternoon's game where Justin Smoke lost a hit because of an exaggerated shift when he tried to get the ball over the second baseman's head, and amazingly enough, the third baseman was standing uh, you know, diametrically at a 90-degree angle. How do you feel about that? Are you are you happy with the way the game has developed into something that's now been criticized as a mostly boring product in a lot of circles, whether it's inside or outside of baseball? Yeah, I mean that's definitely something uh, Rob Manfred mentioned that earlier this week when uh, when he was at the All Star game, uh, shifting and uh, dealing with that is is definitely something that Major League Baseball is looking into, and I think at last check there are more. Um, there's more strikeouts than hits right now in major league baseball or or something like that. It's really, and the all-star game itself was indicative of where the game is right now. It's basically strikeouts and home runs. That's what you're, that's what you're looking at. Um, Whereas on the flip side, I think that really is what is getting pitchers paid is strikeouts. And that's also what's getting hitters paid is, is home runs. You're not, as you mentioned, you're not seeing guys really steal 50 bases a season anymore. Um, they really are swing happy. They're, they're striking out 200 times a season, which really used to be, that was like a cardinal sin. And now it's, if you're hitting 30 plus home runs, no one really cares. Um, I think every professional sport definitely has its ebbs and flows where you kind of see the game shift slightly. And I think we're in one of those phases right now. And Really, it depends on what Major League Baseball wants to do with it. If if Rob Manford really wants to outlaw shifts, I think it'll happen. But I think there's going to be a lot of resistance from the uh, from the players' union and just the owners in general because I think right now it is a pretty exciting game. You you change so quickly um, because of there's so many guys who are hitting so many home runs. It's definitely a far cry from what it was five or ten years ago, but. Um, I think that's just the way Major League Baseball is today. And uh, if they really, 
the problem is if you tinker with it too much, you, you're taking the essence out of the game and trying to make it something it's not and too gimmicky. So it's it's really a fine line that Major League Baseball has to uh, to ride right now. And um, I, I honestly, I would be in favor of just kind of keeping it the way it is. I think the game itself right now is pretty exciting um, as currently constituted. Well, and the proof is usually in the playoffs, right? Uh, the playoffs are supposed to be the culmination of what your sport is all about because it's your best teams facing each other. So hopefully this year we'll see the usual home run attempts and, and, and strikeouts that happen at the worst possible time. And uh, mixed in, hopefully, will be some strategy. I've noticed last year there have been surprises, haven't there, where a manager might suddenly decide to try to pull a double steal or try to do a drag bunt in a suicide squeeze situation. I guess what I'm saying is the game, I think, is at its predictable best when you really don't know what the opposition is planning to do, right? Well, and that's exactly it. I feel like every week we're seeing something in baseball that we've never seen before, a certain play pulled off or a certain... Uh, a player do something uh, or a hitter try something or a pitcher try something. There's always something new. So it's uh, this game constantly amazes me after all the, all these years, we're still seeing things that have never happened before. And that's, that really is the great essence of baseball. Very well said, my friend. Let's, uh, let's get close to wrapping it up here. I've got one last question for you and I, I want to get your, your feedback or or get you to chime in on what you've witnessed over the last few weeks as we now steamroll towards the eventual promotion of Roberto Osuna back to the club. How do you see this all ending, Ian, when, when everything is said and done, given all the gossip and the rumors and the uh, predictions of, of how this is going to impact the brand and how the fans will feel? What's What's your take on this in the final analysis? It's so bizarre because there's a potential here of having – Roberto Osuna returned to the Blue Jays before his court case is settled, which just seems odd to me. And there's nothing the Blue Jays can do about it either because he'll have served his 75-game suspension. Um, I believe Major League, like the Blue Jays can't just sit him down the rest of the year. That's um, against the CBA. Like that was their 75-game suspension. So once he's served that, he's free and clear unless something happens with his court case. But I just think optically it's just bizarre to have him on the field with the Blue Jays, regardless of what happens with his court case. And, you know, the front office and even John Gibbons has come out and said, Roberto Osuna is going to be our closer, which a lot of people have rightfully so said that doesn't seem right. I'm in that camp as well. But I think you can't – you can't portray that that Osuna is a distressed asset to your competitors because then they're just going to come in and lowball you with an offer. I think ultimately he's more than likely going to be traded this offseason because the Blue Jays just don't want to deal with it. And it's not that's not something you want hanging over your head and hanging over your organization. As talented a player as he is, it's just that's something you can't you can't have, you can't endorse, and you can't you can't just have this guy around your team, to be honest. So I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. Um, it sounds like he will come back. He's probably going to close games and save games. Fan reaction, I feel like, is going to be mixed from here on out. But, yeah, yeah, next year I, I really can't foresee him in a Blue Jays uniform. I just think it's too it – it just doesn't feel right, doesn't seem right to have him back. And given his controllability, he really is fantastic trade bait. Because if our oldest Chapman taught us anything, 
It's that general managers of other teams really don't seem to care whether or not a player has that kind of baggage, right? So why not turn him into a trade asset that will bring back something so as you rebuild in 2019, you don't have to worry about the noxious fumes left over from what was clearly a very controversial uh, circumstance. No, and I, I think Jonah Carey actually wrote about this last year about saying that that was probably the time to maximize the return on him because uh, as he continues to get older, there's more wear and tear in his arm, and he's already had a Tommy John surgery, I think, at age 16. Um, and he's, I mean, closers are a dime or dozen, really. Like, you've got so many guys in the bullpen who could fill that role. I, I think Ryan Tapera could definitely be that guy. And especially now with the Blue Jays, and they're not a contending team. They don't, they don't need a Roberto Osuna. Um, that's not make or break for them. And um, although they wouldn't get as much for him this offseason as they would have, say, at the start of the year, I feel like that's optically that's the move to make. You have to get him out of the organization. Obviously, you're not going to let him go and just release him and get nothing for him. But you just you can't have that hanging over your organization. It's just. You know, this is the time where the Blue Jays have to turn the page and and move on and 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 get them out of town, frankly. And I'm inclined to agree. And uh, of course, when you're that young and you have that much promise, and unfortunately something like this happens, that is in many respects his second chance given to him by baseball. Maybe not the court of public opinion, and maybe not even the court of law when all of this is settled. But one thing's for sure: for the Blue Jays to move on with the young group that they'll have, with the promise that they'll hold and the character and, and, and competitive quality we're looking for as a focus, I don't know if Roberto Osuna would, would really fit anywhere near in that paradigm. Ian, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Take a moment now and tell me what's going on at BlueJayHunter.com and what you've been working on and what's on the horizon for you. Sure. Well, um, uh, this week I just wrapped a piece for actually for Daily Hive on Claire Eccles. Um, you may have heard of her. She's the first female player to ever play for the West Coast League out um, in Victoria. She just uh, finished her second season there with the Victoria Harbor Cats. So I did an interview with her and the managing partner of the Victoria Harbor Cats. It's a really, uh, really great story that if you haven't heard about Claire Eccles, you should definitely look it up because she's a really inspirational young lady. Um, and then for BlueJayHunter.com, I'm working, actually I spoke with uh, tr- uh, a bunch of Toronto's local craft brewers on the state of craft beer at the Rogers Centre, which uh, if you've ever been to a Blue Jays game, you know is severely lacking. So I, I asked kind of about their opinion on uh, how to get craft beer back into Blue Jays games and uh, just their opinions on that. So that's uh, what I'm working on this week at uh, BlueJayHunter.com. Once again, Ian, all you've done is reinforce my belief that you are the classiest journalist in Toronto because you know my fixation with casks of ale, of which I consumed many last year during the 2017 Blue Jay season. So for me to know that you're doing such investigative reports at breweries, I'll tell you, we're going to have to talk off mic, of course, about that. He is Ian Hunter, a blogger and writer for Sporting News MLB, Daily Hive Toronto, and Blue Jays Nation. Be sure to check out his awesome work at www.bluejayhunter.com. Ian, always a pleasure to have you on the Jays Journal podcast. Awesome. Thanks. It was great, Ari. Thank you for having me. So this week's episode of the show always has a round table that's worth writing home about. And I think you're going to want to listen to this one for a while to come, folks, because I have assembled a phenomenal round table. Let's 
go around the horn and introduce everyone. First off, you know him as one of the site experts at Jay's Journal, one of the most prolific Blue Jays writers across the land. Chris Henderson, welcome back to the show, sir. Good evening, my friend. Always a pleasure to join you. Yeah, it seems like you haven't been here for quite a while. I don't know who's responsible for that. It's been a while. You know, summer gets busy. I'm just kidding. I I know who's responsible. (laughs) This this guy's responsible for that. So there you go. Great to have you back. Uh, The next guest on the panel is a regional supervisor at the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network and a frequent contributor to the show with his great prospect evaluation modules, Richard Burfer. Welcome back to the Jay's Journal Podcast. Hi, Ari. Thanks for having me back again. Always a pleasure, my friend. Remind me after the show to get some more modules from you on some of the upcoming talent that's currently in the pipe for the Toronto Blue Jays. Oh, for um, sure. And finally, and finally, no roundtable is complete without this gentleman. He's a feature writer at the Canadian Baseball Network and a personal favorite of mine when it comes to getting solid Blue Jay scoops and news, Cole Shelton. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, boys, let's just uh, let's get down to brass tacks and jump right into this. Uh, James Anthony Happ has been traded, and I want to get initial reactions from, from the three of you on the trade of acquiring Brandon Drury and Billy McKinney from the New York Yankees. Give me your thoughts on whether or not this was something that that surprised you, disappointed you, and what your general perception is on this particular trade. Let's start with you, Chris. You know, I don't know that it was much of a surprise, just given the amount of talk that's been around the Blue Jays being connected with the Yankees and the the dire need for starting pitching in New York. You know, that team is so well set up that it uh, blew my mind that – that they that they ended up going out and getting another reliever before they even addressed the starting pitching. But now they've got both, so I guess it doesn't matter. Um, you know, my initial reaction, though, to the trade, and I've worked on a piece that will be coming up uh, on Friday here. Um, you know, I'm just not a huge fan of it. I think, you know, oftentimes I'm a, I'm a fan of getting the best player available. But in this case, Drury just seems like a lot of what we already have to me. And I feel like there's, you know, guys like Solarte could buy the time that Drury will buy time to the next generation. And I feel like, you know, I wish they would have pursued some pitching prospects. Maybe they weren't there at all from Milwaukee or Chicago or anywhere else. But uh, I was disappointed that that I felt like we got another redundant piece, even if he's talented. Um, in uh, terms of, uh, sorry, in terms of Jay Happ, I just think um, if you look at the stats, and he's also a 35-year-old and he's a rental um, I think that that just shows what, what kind of market there is for starting pitching. And if you look at Jay Happ's stats, you just see, I think his ERA right now is over four. His uh, FIP is close to four. And, I mean, that's that. Um, it's it's a little bit of a surprise because a couple of weeks ago there were rumors about Justice Sheffield and Clint Frazier, and then it just kind of boiled down to this. Um, and it kind of sucks, I guess, as a Jays fan, but Billy McKinney, he's he's a nice prospect. He's now in the Jays' top 30. Um, but in terms of what the Yankees are doing, um, personally, I'm a fan of what Tampa does with the bullpenning, and I thought that the Yankees didn't even need more starting pitches, um, more starting pitching. I would be a huge fan if they came out in the playoffs and just bullpen with all the relievers that they had and just kind of built starts around uh, Severino. So it's an interesting move. Um, and I don't think the Yankees were super desperate to get a pitcher, um, especially a pitcher like Jay Happ, because he's while he was an all-star, he's not an ace-caliber pitcher. So I guess that kind of shows them what the Jays got in return for him. 
Yeah, I think there's no surprise that Hap was traded. That he was the biggest chip that Toronto could trade. The return, if they got uh, Sheffield or Clint Frazier, that would have been a lot better. Drury, like Chris said, he's kind of like what they have in Solarte. But I think Mm -hmm. what's going under the radar is Billy McKinney, because like you mentioned, he is like a really good outfielder. He can hit the ball pretty. Like he has, he's hit what 13 home runs this year already. Yeah. Like um, I believe he has like pretty pretty solid pop and then average tools across the board. So, I mean, for a guy like Jay Happ, you can't really complain at this point, especially how his last three four starts went, other than the last one, you know. Certainly, and for me, I, I I agree with you guys. I think the return is certainly fair in terms of talent value. I just didn't think that in this case, I was hoping the Blue Jays wouldn't bring in another third base, second baseman. You know, and maybe maybe I'm seeing it short sighted. Maybe they got other plans and other trades for this week or in August or even this winter. But but uh, yeah, I, I guess I was just hoping that there would be some pitching that would come back. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Like, the, oh yeah, go ahead. I agree on the pitching too, because even like McKinney, they bring in an outfield. That's just they already have a huge logjam with like Alford, they have Hernandez, Grichuk, like Dwight Smith Jr., Pompey. Just adding McKinney, like they have so much like outfielders, and they don't know what to do with it now. Yeah, but um, just to add to that point, um, I feel like the Jays wouldn't really make this trade this trade if they didn't really gauge what the interest for Solarte was. So I feel like there's more to come. Um, I'm guessing Jervis Solarte might be moved in the next few days. And in terms of um, how you pile up prospects, um, that's really how the game works now. You, if you look at how the Jays have been drafting lately, they draft a ton of shortstops who hit the ba- the baseball very hard. Not all of them are going to be uh, Blue Jays for like four, three, four years down the line, but having all that depth in the minor league system allows them to, down the line, to make trades for pieces that they will need. So I'm not really complaining that we have just a ton of outfield prospects. I, I think Dalton Pompey is going to be off the books by the end of this season too. So, um, I mean, I'm not I'm not complaining. So maybe they can strike gold with a, a couple of these guys, Other and otherwise they have I mean, top 30 prospects that they can use in trades. Gents, I see there being two streams of criticism which are going to hit the Blue Jays' front office and Mark Shapiro really hard. The first one, of course, being, did they get enough value? And although I'm gauging the sense that maybe we're putting too much stock into what J-Hap is, we know what he was. We know he was only one of five pitchers in the last five years to get at least ten wins. He's someone that became a, a stalwart because of his battles in, in Pittsburgh and the tutelage of Reese Seeger and then becoming this amazing, you know, close to Cy Young caliber pitcher when he was on. But aside from the criticism of, of what we think Jay Happ is and what the Jays are have managed to get in return, I can see a lot of people getting frustrated that they didn't act sooner. Do you buy, let, let's start with you, Cole, do you buy into the notion that the Blue Jays should have tried to trade Jay Happ sooner and perhaps with a little bit more of a um, focus on the different suitors, knowing that he was the best available left-hander heading into the trade deadline? I think the Jays probably tried to trade half suitor, but it really comes down to what the other teams are offering. And if there isn't a market for him, say, back in like June, then they're just going to hold on to him and hope he just keeps on improving his stock and it results in them getting better prospects. And uh, a thing that many teams in baseball do, um, they use the first couple of months just to see what they have on their roster already. 
and then July, August, that's when they start adding players. So I feel like J.A. Happ was performing at his best a little bit too early. So it didn't. It kind of didn't let teams just kind of evaluate what they already have. So if J.A. Happ was performing lights out like he did in um, April and May, just um, just this past month, maybe the Jays could have gotten something better. But at the same time, he's still a 35-year-old, and when he's a rental and He's by no means a star starter. Yeah, and I mean, I, I have to agree. I'm often frustrated when I feel like the market is moving slower than I feel it should, but you, you really ultimately are at the mercy of what the other teams are offering. From from the ports that I've read, it sounds like the Jays did ask for guys like Glenn Frazier and Justice Sheffield, and those, na- those names did come up, and I'm sure that they brought other premium names up with the Cubs and the Brewers and anybody else who asked as well. I, I hope they did anyway. I mean, for the most part, I've, I've liked what this front office has done over the last few years, despite the frustrations of the last couple of seasons. Um, so I'm willing, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they at least tried earlier mm-hmm. and the market just wasn't there. Yeah. And it's, it kind of seems like right now what the market is really high on is relievers. And we saw that with uh, what the Jays received for, for O in the trade with the Rockies. They got two two guys on um, Forrest Wallace. He has a plus hit tool. He's already in the Jays' top 30. Um, Spanberger, he was a, a power hitter in Arkansas when, when he was down in college, and he's been hitting bombs in the minors right now. So that just kind of shows what teams are looking for at this moment. Same thing with the Zach Brennan trade. That's interesting because there are a lot of tweets right now and a lot of social media comments about how the Jays actually made out better with the O trade than they did with this one. So you can imagine oh, for sure. it's, it's a tough, tough audience. I think for some reason there was an expectation that Jay Happ would would either give you a, a higher-end prospect or a player you can put on your roster, maybe worth writing home about, like a Teoscar Hernandez. But we all know it's whatever the market dictates. So let's turn our attention now, Richard, to which dominoes fall next. What do you think? Who who will potentially get traded on this team? What do you see happening as we get closer and closer to the trade deadline? Well, you've been hearing rumors the past few days. It looks like Curtis Granderson might be on the move. Um, Sir Larte might be on the move as well. And then some relievers you can talk about, uh, John Axford, um, Tyler Clippard. And Right now, what I'm hoping for, I hope that Curtis Granderson gets moved just so we can kind of open up the outfield for some of the younger guys, um, like Anthony Alford, hopefully, can come come up, uh, give Dwight Smith Jr. some more time, even give Dalton Pompey some more time, because, like I said, I think he's going to be, his contract's up at the end of the season. Just kind of see what you have in him, because with Curtis Granderson, I mean, there's nothing nothing really left that he has to show you. Um, you've seen that uh, the Phillies have been interested. Um, so that's kind of what I see happening. I'm guessing Solarte might get moved. I'm guessing Curtis Granson might get moved. And then we'll see what happens with the relievers. Yeah, my guess would also probably be Granderson is the next guy to get moved. And I think Clippard is definitely a guy that, you know, if they, I think they can get a return for Clippard that would at least make some sort of sense. Axford will see how much interest there is around the league. Um you know, and then I, the other guy that I hope that they can still find a market for is, is Marco Estrada. And I, you know, after this return from from the Yankees, it's not we're not going to be expecting a massive return by any means. But but uh, you know, with the with the Ryan Baruckis and the other young arms that I wouldn't mind seeing for the remainder of this season, there, there's no point. I mean, there's no, I don't see Estrada coming back again next year. Or at least I don't see a point in bringing him back again. 
So if you can get anything, even uh, you know a high risk prospect, why not? You may as well. And then you can give the opportunity to the younger guys within the last couple of months of the season and and see what you've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If if anything, you do get open up a spot in the in the starting rotation for one of the younger guys. Um, you see, Sean Foley has been pitching really well down in Buffalo. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And Jordan Romano, who's a Toronto kid, uh, maybe he'll get a call up um, later in the season. So. If, I, I feel like the next two months for the Jays is all about just trying out for next year and just giving the younger guys more playing time. That's what the Jays have to prioritize right now. And I think you just touched on two guys that will be potentially fighting for a back-end rotation spot next year. Like mm-hmm. Those are the two names that have really impressed me. Sure. You know, And TJ, uh, TJ Zuch, I always second-guess if I'm saying his name right, so feel free to correct me, but he's another guy that um, that I feel like could be in the conversation for the back of the, of the rotation next year. So if you can give him a couple of starts or give those other two guys some starts down the stretch of the season, I, I say there's no reason not to. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if you can get a trade return for Estrada, you may as well be starting Jaime Garcia in that spot again. It, it, you know, he's been great in the bullpen, but but uh, yeah. you got to look you got to look long term. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, with someone like uh, Sean Reed Foley, a couple years ago, he was one of the Jays' highly touted prospects, and he had a little bit of a rough patch in New Hampshire two years ago, and now he's back on track. And the big thing with Sean Reed Foley has always been fastball command, and. He has an electric arm. He has uh, plus off-speed pitches, and it seems just this year he's putting everything together. So the more you get, the more time you give someone like him, Jordan Romano, maybe, and you mentioned T.J. Zoic, he might be a little further down along the way. But these are all young arms that could potentially help help the Jays out in 2019 and 2020 and and, for, and onwards. And then, like what you guys said, going back to like who they were going to trade, I think you guys all nailed on the head. But I think the big question mark for the Jays is if Donaldson comes back, would there still be a market for him in August for a contending team to come get him for, like August, September, and the playoffs? Because really, he re- his market in the free agent, what really is it anymore? So now that he's been hurt, because he wanted that big money, but now did, would he even accept the qualifying offer as a question, too? Um, one name I actually was thinking of on the Jays is Justin Smoke, actually. I don't know what the market for a cheap first baseman who's been kind of playing really well lately. I think his OPS plus is actually better than it was last year, and I believe yeah. he has a team, a, a cheap team option for next year. And um, it seems like Vladdy Guerrero is going to be up with the team in 2019, and it doesn't look like third base will be the will be an option for Vladdy because the agility and the athleticism is, is just not there for third base. So it seems like he projects more for first base. So, I mean, if Josh Donaldson could accept a qualifying offer and kind of bet on himself like Jose Batista did, that could be an option for the Jays maybe. I could certainly see that being something that plays out too, just given the way that Donaldson's market has played out. And, you know, the yeah. complicated thing about the August trades is that, you know, if, if he's healthy – anybody that's in the contention is going to put a claim in on, mm-hmm. even if they don't really have room for them, just to, you know, like imagine that it gets to Boston and New York, even if neither of them had a spot for him, which they both could use them. Mm-hmm. But even if but neither of them had a spot for him, they would put a claim in just to make sure the other didn't get him. You know, yeah, obviously sure. there's some luxury tax issues and stuff in there too, but I really feel like Donaldson, unfortunately, they're going to be left with potentially one team that they can trade with and the offer is going to be next to nothing. So I'd be surprised if they get an offer that's better than, you know, a supplemental first round pick Mm -hmm. in August, uh, but I I could be wrong. 
Yeah, and I, I know the Brewers were looking at the potential of uh, trading for Mike Moustakis. So if Josh Dawson maybe comes back and maybe produces, maybe something can happen there. But at this point, it just doesn't look promising. That seems to be the recurring theme of the future, which is maybe, right? A lot of maybes. We don't know who's going to pan out. There's a lot of wishful thinking. But I think we can agree that the whole point of this trade deadline in the last two months of the season is to see what this management group can do to build some enthusiasm, create some stock in the future so people can look forward to to going out to games in 2019. Um, while we struggle with that, other teams are jockeying for position. And, of course, I'm, I want to start with you, Chris. Was there any regret in seeing it was the Yankees who ended up with Hap? knowing that with his numbers against the Red Sox, certain Red Sox in particular, do you think that might have been the move that puts them over the top to be the favorite to win the World Series with someone like a J-Hab? It definitely helps. I mean, the Yankees have such a talented lineup and such a a stellar bullpen. I I said it right from the start of the year. I picked the Red Sox to win the division because of the Yankees' rotation. And, they, you know, I think they've been lucky getting the production that they have from Sabathia. But beyond Severino, there's not really anybody in that rotation that I would trust to make a playoff start. And I think Hap, at the very least, can give you a playoff start quality, you know, representation for them. And especially an upgrade for their rotation. You know, if you're talking about him versus Sonny Gray, then I don't think there's any doubt that uh, the Yankees definitely improved here. Um, You know, as far as making a trade with the Yankees, any other year, I think, or any other time, I generally am against it, but... I feel like the Blue Jays are on the cusp of a rebuild, you know, and trading a rental player and taking a dent out of the Yankees when they're going to be good for the next, you know, at least five years. I don't mind at least at the very least, we've taken a couple of trade pieces out of their, out of their stable. And and, uh, if we can hurt them with a trade while we're rebuilding, then I'm okay with that. I suppose it comes down to the interpretation of taking a chunk out of their stable, right? I mean, some would argue that getting their number 20 prospect, which I think McKinney is, and and a player in Drury who comes with the upside of a Jan Hervis Solarte and a worst case scenario where he's just another another infielder. I'm wondering, guys, am I missing something in looking at the blueprint for the young players and realizing how pitching is really thin? I mean, the Blue Jays they went out and got Jordan Groshans. They've gone out in these deals and acquired middle infielders and outfielders. Uh, Richard, are you? concerned at all that there won't be enough layers of pitching reinforcement for next year, knowing that there's a lot of ifs. I mean, Sean Reed Foley is a question mark. TJ Zoik's a question mark. A lot of things have to go right for the Blue Jays to have five starters who can throw quality innings next year. Are you worried about that? For sure. Um, in terms of what the Jays are going to do for next year, the main thing that they're going to be focusing on is just developing their younger players. So that could mean bringing back uh, a, a kind of a, a not a poor pitcher, for on a one-year deal, you can always find that, um, kind of like what the Jays did with Marco Estrada signing him on for one more year. So pitchers like that will always be available who can just take roster spots. I mean, Jaime Garcia did the exact same thing. But in terms of their pitching depth down in the minors, outside of Sean Foley and Jordan Romano, there's no one really ready to take that next step. Um, I'm I'm not even sure if Jordan Romano is, but if you look kind of lower down um, their minor league ladder, you see guys like uh, Nate Pearson, who could become a star on the next level in the next couple of years when he hopefully will make his MLB debut. The Jays uh, drafted Adam Klofenstein, who's 
actually a high school teammate of Jordan Groshans, and he has a great arm. Um, TJ Zoik should be up in the next couple of years. So the Jays have depth in terms of pitching lower down in the minors, but I think for next year it's just going to be about piecing together um, a rotation with Stroman, with Aaron Sanchez, um, maybe with Sean Rifoli, and maybe just going out and signing just a, a, a pitcher on a one-year deal who really has no other options. Then another name, too, is uh, Thomas Pannone, who was suspended like the 80 games this year for steroids, mm-hmm. but he's yeah, pitching pretty well in Buffalo, too. Yeah, there we go. Um, he's he's a lefty, he doesn't throw it too hard, but, I mean, he's getting outs, so that's always fun. Um, one thing I noticed with the Jays is they always try to go for guys who kind of finesse hitters and don't throw too hard, so it's kind of nice to see uh, pitchers like Sean Rifoli and Nate Pearson going up through the system who can actually um, get get outs with their stuff as opposed to hitting the corners and trying to finesse around batters. Two of the great hopes on the rotation aren't kids anymore. I want to go around the table starting with you, Cole. Do you believe that Marcus Stroman and Aaron Sanchez have peaked, or is there another gear that fans can still see in both of these pitchers when it comes to 2019 and beyond? I think both of them have are capable of being aces. It's just if they can, right? Like this season, Stroman, some games he flashes like that that he is an ace, and then other games he looks like he's just getting hammered, can barely get out of like the second and third inning. Mm-hmm. I think I think it'll be interesting how he finishes this season because over the past couple of starts he's been much better, but just like getting to a solid end of the season and then working that into spring training next year should lead to a good season for him. And then Sanchez, he's back on the disabled list. I think. For him, as long as he's healthy, he could be one of the best. He could be one of the top pitchers the Jays have. Yeah, as far as health goes, I think that's the number one thing for Aaron Sanchez. And another thing with with Sanchez is when you see him struggle, it's because he doesn't have fastball command. And just looking at his stats and his strikeout per nine, he has electric stuff. Yet his strikeout per nine is right around five or six, which doesn't make sense. And the big thing with with um, Aaron Sanchez is. Sometimes he just can't command his fastball. And when he's not hitting his spots with his fastball, his changeup and his curveball don't look as good. So if he comes in next year and starts commanding his fastball, he can be lights out. He can be one of the top pitchers in the AL. As far as Marcus Stroman, I mean, fastball command is also very important. He always has to keep the ball down um, because he can't really pitch downhill because of his lack of size. But if he keeps, if he keeps the ball down, induces more ground balls, slider keeps working well, then he can still be a very, very good starting pitcher. And hopefully he stays healthy because he came into this season with his shoulder kind of barking. So um, hopefully, the main thing for these two guys is health and fastball command. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't have a lot to add. I, I agree with you guys. You know, I, I feel like I feel like Sanchez has so much untapped potential, and we, and we saw him, you know, we saw him doing that in 2016 when he won the ERA title, and just saw what he's capable of doing, but you know, I I'm starting to feel like there's too much of a comparison with him and Brandon Morrow because, and maybe that's not fair, but Morrow was just a guy that again had electric stuff and looked like the ace type of guy, but he just couldn't stay healthy as a starter. And I'm really hoping that that's not the future for Aaron Sanchez because when I see him and he's in the right headspace and he's on on his game, he he is one of the he can have the potential to be one of the top arms in the American League. Um, Stroman, I feel like. 
he I don't feel like there's as much unseen potential from him as there is from Sanchez, but I do think again that he can be a top of the rotation type of guy when he's healthy and as you say when he's got his fastball command where it needs to be. And the crazy thing with Aaron Sanchez is uh, the year he won the ERA title, he didn't even have his good changeup button that year. Now you can no, see, right. saw a lot of it in spring training. It's a nasty pitch, but of course a good changeup is only as good as your fastball, right? So if he can improve on the fastball and uh, and start commanding it better, his changeup is going to be lights out, and you're just going to see his strikeout numbers just skyrocket. I, I totally agree. When I watched him using that changeup in spring training and, and early on in the season, I was excited because I'd never seen that quality of of that mm-hmm. pitch from him before. And uh, like I say, yeah, if he can if he can just get back to what he was doing in 2016 and add that, then then I think there's a lot of untapped potential. But he just scares me with how long it takes him to come back from a contusion on his fingertip. I, 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 I don't understand. Well, see, and, and it was never a question of talent with him, right, with Aaron Sanchez. It was always about whether or not he could stay healthy, although I could easily make the case that I'm not sure he has nearly the kind of pitching poise and fortitude that a Marcus Stroman has, you know? That that moment when a, when a pitcher is under siege and has to rear back and make the his pitch, you know, make 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 his momentum... He's shown time and time again that he just struggles with that. And it's hard to believe that once upon a time we talked about the nucleus of this Blue Jays team as being Marcus Stroman, Aaron Sanchez, Roberto Asuna, and Devin Travis. Let's wrap up this round table by going around the horn, and I'll start with you, Cole. Of those four names, who do you still see being a Blue Jay when we hit 2020? Are any of these fragments still going to be around to be part of whatever this new Bo Bichette, Vlad Guerrero Jr.-led team will be in the future? I think Sanchez is probably the name I'd bet on. I think Osuda, the Jays, they've already, there's talk, or there's rumors out right now that they're already trying. They're, like, gauging, or they're gauging the interest of what the market is for him. And then today there's a port, the Braves are talking to the Jays of Stroman. And then Travis, if, because a bunch of people say Bichette can't play shorts, so if he does slide over to second, it kind of does take Travis's spot away. So I would say Sanchez for 2020, only if he could stay healthy, though. Um, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think Aaron Sanchez has the most promise out of really all four players. Um, in terms of Devin Travis, I think he's, when healthy, one of the best pure hitters the Jays have, and he's controllable. Amen. Um, I, I know Bo Bichette has uh, improved vastly at shortstop and in, in double-A, and I think that's where he's going to stick. And, I mean, depending on how you feel about Kevin Biggio, it seems that that's kind of going to be the the battle for second base in years to come. Um, some people like Kevin Biggio because of the pop he has. Some people call it just all pull power. So we'll see how it kind of uh, translates over to the big leagues. Yeah, and for me... For me, if I had to pick one of them, I'd probably go with Stroman because I agree with you guys that, that uh, you know Travis is going to have an uphill battle with um, some of the other talent that's coming. I actually think that Bichette's going to end up at second base because I think I, I, I would like to predict that uh, Gurriel's going to be the long-term shortstop. I just love the raw talents I see from him. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, as far as Sanchez, uh, the thing that I – you know, it's such a complicated thing because it's, his value will be so interesting to, to come up with in a couple of years. Uh, just being a Scott Boris client, you know, he's you know that his agent's going to try and maximize his value. And right now, I'm not sure that if I were the Blue Jays, I'd invest big money into the guy. So mm-hmm. uh, 
it's it's hard to say. I mean, any one of those four players, you can make an easy argument for why they won't be around in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'll see Osuna in, in a Blue Jays jersey next season even. So um, if I had to choose one, I'd go with Stroman. It's a sad irony, isn't it, that these names that we're talking about at various points could have been very powerful pieces to acquire new talent. Obviously, no one could have anticipated that Donaldson's value would bottom out, nor the fact that they would have to resort to going to their backup players, their their B options, both in the bullpen, on the infield, and in the rotation. Um, quickly, will Jay Happ return as a Blue Jay? And if you had the opportunity to take him back, would you? Can you see him being a Blue Jay in the future, Chris? I think the Blue Jays would be silly not to want him back, to, you know, of course, depending on what his ask is. Um, you know, we got him for three years, and I think it was, what, $36 million last time? So I would give him the same contract again. Um whether or not that's enough to get it done. And and if I were him, I'd probably want to pursue a more immediate championship contender if, you know, for the last few years of his career, because he's not going to be around that much longer. Uh, I don't think he'll be back, but I would certainly welcome him back with open arms if it was up to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, we were talking about this earlier in, in the podcast, how the Jays rotation is going to look in 2019. Jay Hap could be just an excellent filler for the Jays next year. And even the year after, um, I don't know if I'd go as far as three years because he's going to be 36 next year, um, but a, a one-year one-year deal with a with a team option or a player option after that, and I think that sounds solid. And it kind of just um, bides time before guys like Nate Pearson, T.J. Soy come up and establish themselves as legit starters and in, in the big leagues. Yeah, I think the Jays would be silly not to bring Hat back. Because if you guys saw yesterday, too, he was sitting beside Barucky. I think he'd be a great mentor for Barucky, like the both left-handers, just to like just show him like the way around the big leagues. Because Barucky is still so young, and he's just getting his first taste of the big leagues right now, too. So in the final analysis, it sounds like it could be win-win for the Blue Jays, that in giving up half for half a season so that some other team could profit, they'll walk out with, again, some young, promising talent, and hopefully him plying his craft here over the next couple of years. Gentlemen, this was an absolute pleasure having you drop in for the round table. You've been listening to Chris Henderson, Richard Burfer, and Cole Shelton here on the Jays Journal podcast. Gentlemen, thanks for dropping by. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. Pleasure as always, my friend.